The Barbie movie is great, but I think some folks have it wrong. They say the villain in the film is the patriarchy. I say the real villain is even worse. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the nightlight is on. Tonight on the show, man up, whatever that means. Even the founding fathers debated masculinity. What is a man? What should a man aspire to be? Today, the debate is just as urgent. Men are facing some troubling health disparities, and misogyny is making some guys rich and famous. Today, we'll get into the politics of manhood through a recent issue of Politico magazine. Plus, we'll share some of your reviews of Barbie, and I'll give you my take on the movie's real villain. The root of patriarchy's power threatens Ken and Barbie just the same. I always love to hear from you. Find me on social media at Joshua Listening or email me joshua at nightlightshow.com. Joining me now is Katie Fawcett. She's a senior editor at Politico Magazine who edited its masculinity issue. Ms. Fawcett, welcome. Thank you so much. What made Politico decide to do an issue of the magazine on masculinity? The magazine likes to do stories on like the weird ways in which culture and politics are interacting, stuff that's like slightly off of the big political news, but like about the big trends and the future, where this stuff is, you know, history, where this stuff is coming from, where it's going, and um, also just weird stuff. And masculinity seemed like it was good terrain for, you know, it's it can be funny sometimes, but it's ultimately like super interesting. And I think it's politically very important to understanding the appeal of some of these politicians people. So. Yeah, I feel like masculinity is very much a proxy for other things. When we say hmm. masculinity, we mean other stuff. And some of that is encompassed in the articles that are in the issue, one of which, which is by Virginia Heffernan, called The Crisis Over American Manhood is Really Code for Something Else. You get into some of the current political conversation, particularly in conservative and Republican circles around masculinity. Before I get into the players, why is now a moment for talking about masculinity from a political point of view? Is this just one of those things that comes up every now and then and we don't notice it? Or are the stars kind of aligning in a unique way for politicos to talk about this right now? It, I think it does come up every once in a while, and that's what that Virginia Heffernan piece is about. Um, she sort of talks about how it has happened more in the culture than in politics. And I think right now, what we're seeing is it's clearly been very successful in culture, right? Like we've seen some of these figures take off online for talking about masculinity very explicitly. You know, we talk a lot about these figures in the package, like Jordan Peterson, you know, Joe Rogan to some degree, like um, Andrew Tate, you know, they're much worse, um, like iterations of this, but um, it's clearly proven to be a very potent cultural issue. And I think it's sort of wrapped in with like, the way culture wars are kind of eating our politics generally. Like, I think that politicos saw a very ripe, um, I saw an opening here to exploit the power that masculinity clearly has culturally and bring it into politics, so. One of the political figures who's really 
latched onto this in the last few years in particular is Josh Hawley, a Republican senator from Missouri. Tell us a little bit about Senator Hawley and how that's kind of manifested for him in terms of his political brand these days. Yeah, it seems to be a theme that has, um, I remember 2021, I think, was when he gave a conference, was when he gave a speech at the uh, NatCon conference. That was the first time that I remember reading about um, him making masculinity a big issue. And he gave us uh, an interview to Mike Allen right after that, where he said that he was going to make masculinity a signature political issue. And then after that, at some point last year, I think, was when it came out that he was writing this book about um, manhood. And I'm sorry, NatCon. That's a national conservatism conference, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think for him, it's it it does a lot of things. Um, you know, he is um, an evangelical Christian, and there is a long history of these ideas in evangelical Christianity. There are some writers. Uh, John Eldridge, I think, is one. He has this book called Wild at Heart. Um, there's long been a conversation about complementarianism. Um, the writer Kristen Cobus dumais has written a lot about that in her book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Um, so I think it's helping connect with that part of, of his base. And um, also, one has to wonder how much of it is a class-based appeal as well, coming on the heels of like Donald Trump's appeals to like, um, you know, he loves shouting out uh, construction workers and factory workers. And, you know, um, there is like a certain image of masculinity that is consonant with those appeals that I think is also part of Holly's brand. One of the things that I love about Virginia Heffernan's piece is the historical context, mm -hmm. that this goes all the way back to like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson debating whether men should have that kind of kind of more pious puritanical ideal that John Adams supported or the more kind of lusty libidinous alpha male what I think today we would call a Chad that Thomas Jefferson was more all about and certainly lived his life that way. Uh, we won't bring Sally Hemings into the room, but she knows who she is. <laughs> but like this, this is a really. Hang on, hold it. Hey, it's uh, future Joshua just listening back to the episode. My mistake. I made an error. It's actually Alexander Hamilton, not Thomas Jefferson. Sorry, I misspoke in the interview. Didn't catch it until I was editing it down meant to say Alexander Hamilton. Sorry about that. All right, back to the episode. This is a really old debate. What is What do people like Senator Hawley get out of even being part of this? I mean, is he a true believer? Is he just doing this for donations and votes? Like, what's the payoff? I think part of it is to connect with his, I think if you can tap into um, resentments and what people perceive to be the, the source of those, that that is useful. Um, I think it's a very relatable um, thing right now. I think that, you know, it, it, another part of the package we did was that poll, which showed that a lot of Americans think that men are facing problems right now. And nobody can really agree on what those problems are, like the, the causes of them or the solutions to them. But there is a sense that, you know, men and boys, you know, are falling behind in school and college. And so I think in some ways, um, there's a lot that resonates with people when Holly talks about it. But it can be, like as you were saying, it can be sort of like a container for all kinds of grievances and resentments. And that's where it gets sort of interesting. 
You mentioned that poll that was conducted back in May by Politico Magazine and Ipsos. It's a survey of just over a thousand people split between Republicans, Democrats, and independents and people with no party affiliation. Some of the takeaways from the poll were interesting. I'll post a link online at nightlightshow.com, but there were a number of statements that you asked people to agree or disagree with. Some of them Republicans agreed with more, for example, traditional family structures with a wage-earning father and homemaking mother best equip children to succeed. Just about half of Republicans agreed with that. 16% of Democrats agreed with that. On the flip side, you had statements like, for example, let me find one that kind of came down the other way. It is easy to understand why women's groups are still concerned about societal limitations of women's opportunities. Three-fourths of Democrats agreed with that. About two-fifths of Republicans agreed. However, there were some statements that had very strong agreement across the board, including one from Doug Emhoff, the second gentleman, the husband of Vice President Kamala Harris. I'm going to read the whole statement. Quote, we've kind of confused what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine. You've got this trope out there that you've got to be tough and angry and lash out to be strong. It's just the opposite. Strength is how you show your love for people and how you stick up for other people and push back against bullies, unquote. Among Republicans and Democrats, 73% of both groups said they agreed with that statement. Katie Fawcett, what does that tell you in terms of where we are politically on our views on masculinity? Yeah, we're in agreement about the fact that men and boys are facing well, that there's either problems with our ideas about masculinity, and a lot of people feel that way. Um, I think from there, it's like, what do you do with that? Um, I mean, it, for the people we interviewed for that piece, um, one of them, Joan Williams, um, is a, a law professor, and she does a lot of work on gender and culture. She was saying it seems like this could also be potentially, uh, you know, it could be very good for Democrats to try to tap into this. Um, this question here, because it's clearly something that they're thinking about. They probably have different solutions, and but you know, letting Republicans take this up as their issue and leaving it totally on the table, it sort of leaves leaves votes on the table. You know, are we one of the other things? And I don't know if you see it this way, that I kind of take from the survey that was illuminating for me. I think, if I'm reading this right, is that we may not all be solving the same problem, right? We don't necessarily mm -hmm. have an apples to apples. You see what I'm saying? Like we may not have an apples to apples definition of what masculinity is, especially if some people maybe consider it just a trait and others consider it the root of a problem. I don't know if that's part of the political debate that we're not hmm. having an apples to apples conversation, you know? Hmm. What was the first part of his quote? Sorry, it was masculinity. The first part of his quote, let me, let's see, of Doug, Doug Emhoff's quote. Yeah. Quote, we kind of confused what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine. You've got this trope out mm. there that you've got to be tough and angry and lash out to be strong. It's just the opposite. Unquote. That's mm. the beginning of his quote. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does seem, though, like 73 percent of Republicans agreed with that. It does seem like while there is agreement that they're the party of masculinity right now, like they also think there are problems with like prevailing ideas about masculinity, which I think is still kind of interesting. It's the same, it's the same thing. It's like the word is like a big concept and it's like, what do you put in that concept? And that's sort of what in Virginia Heffernan's piece, she comes back to at the end about how 
masculinity is actually like quite a new word. And before that, it was just um, the word that it comes from was just meant to mean humanity. Um, and, you know, implying that like masculine virtues used to be like just good, decent virtues. And, you know, um, are we kind of at war, <laughs> you know, over like basic definitions of like decency, which is, yeah. Yeah. The, the kind of the imagery that we wrap around yeah. manhood, you know, it keeps evolving. Speaking of imagery, there was another piece in the magazine um, by Ian Ward, who broke down the images in this very controversial ad that was put out by a super PAC that supports Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's bid for the presidency, for the Republican nomination, that contrasted him against former President Donald Trump in terms of the former president's on-again, off-again support of the LGBTQ community. And it was interspliced with all of these images like bodybuilders, Brad Pitt as Achilles from the movie Troy, Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman from the movie American Psycho, that old image that circulated the web way back of the kind of the AI generated Giga Chad, this like alpha Uber male thing. And I, I think they took it down, A, because it got a lot of pushback, but B, and I'm saying this is a gay dude, that was kind of gay. Like there's a lot of very homoerotic imagery in there. Even in this conference that is described in Virginia Heffernan's piece that Senator Hawley spoke at, there was a lot of imagery like an army tank that was on the stage and all this talk of like, you know, fight club references and all this stuff. I, I, I just feel like y'all need more gay friends just to tell you like that's I'm sorry that you might want to tone this down and that down and a little less oil on the pecs. You know what I'm saying? It just the imagery seems screwy is all I'm saying. Yeah, right. That there was that line in her piece about the Fight Club references and a prize for dense chest hair as like <laughs> presumably things to like shoo away gay vibes. And somebody made fun of that on Twitter and they said like, oh, yeah, this is so funny. Like. Like a, a, that a prize for Denz's chest hair would like be so not gay. And um, it is sort of, that's a catch 22. Yeah, they need to go meet my boyfriend because they'll, then they'll be like, I'm shaving. Yeah, no. And then of course I'll say, I know someone who's into that too. So you're, you're screwed no matter what. It's not going to work no matter right. what. What is up with this? Like the journalist in me, the former Washington journalist in me who got way too close to politics for my own taste is trying not to cynically believe that this is just about money and power and control, right? I'm mm. trying to believe that there are that there are men in these political conversations who are trying to solve a real problem, but I cannot ignore the reality that there's an election around the corner and this is an opportunity for money, power, and control. And I'm, I'm not sure if I'm seeing this correctly, if I'm seeing what's there, if I'm superimposing something on it, like, I don't know. I'm just not sure how to look at this as we head into 2024. Hmm. That's a that's a very good question. Um, yeah, I don't know, because I think that we're clearly in a moment where, you know, your first question was about where is this all coming from? I think we're everyone has just realized how potent the idea, like how powerful the idea of masculinity is and how much it works. And every time a politician, I think, realizes that I don't think we're going to be able to resist using it in some way. Um, but that's not to say, you know, there aren't very real concerns about these things that can be, 
channeled in, in um, productive ways. Um, it's hard to get past your cynicism, like cynicism about politics in any one way. Like, you know, it if dies all of these hard, things are going yeah. to be used for, right. for votes. Like, um, I don't think this issue more than any other one. But yeah, I mean, like Richard Reeves was this guy who was, um, you know, he, he came out with this book of boys and men about the real struggles that boys are facing in school and in workplaces. And, um, and you know, the age component is one, I think, that was maybe underexplored here. A lot of these, like, masculinity figures are connecting with young men in particular. And I think that no matter, you know, I think a lot of people see, like, men, particularly white men, as, you know, the system is almost entirely set up for them. But it's true that any young person is lost and often feels like that's not true. Like, I think that when we're talking about that, we're talking about like men who, you know, are at the top of their careers and things. And um, I think that, you know, with young people in general, like the economy is very, it has been very hard for young people to establish themselves in it for a long time now, you know, since, you know, I graduated during the Great Recession and it was just like, since then, it's not really become much better. And I think that you know, the, the, the age component, like young men probably are actually um, really struggling with some of these things and young women, too, of course. But <laughs> for sure, in their own ways, for sure. But in, in kind of different ways. Right. Yeah. So I definitely think there's a lot here that's that's real on like the, the voter, like the supply side for this sort of talk. Like, um, like it's easy to see what politicians are tapping into, um, even if you're cynical about the political ramifications of it. Yeah. That's on mostly, I think, the Republican and conservative side. What about on the Democratic and progressive side? I'm not sure I hear much from Democrats to specifically speak to men. Although I remember, say, when Barack Obama was the president and he had that initiative about men and boys, about or that fatherhood initiative, that was kind of in that vein, too, but not so much in the sort of swaggering alpha male Brad Pitt as Achilles kind of of way. But is there an additional political effort on the left that we should pay attention to? Or is this mostly on the right? We did a roundtable for the, the package where we talked with Democratic strategists, a scholar and a filmmaker who pay attention to gender and culture and politics. They were saying that one of the issues is that there isn't one, the democratic base is so diverse. There isn't like one image of um, masculinity or manliness. And so it's just, it's less, um, I think it's just less useful. It's like as, you know, a symbol that everyone recognizes immediately to mean something. Um, but, you know, they were saying things like, in almost every community, there there is still the expectation that men provide, you know, and there is this sort of when it comes to which party people trust more on jobs, people tend to trust Republicans more on making jobs. But one of the strategists said that they tend to trust Democrats more when it comes to like improving those jobs and providing better wages and benefits. And so, you know, the Democrats um, like role as um, the protectors of good jobs could be aligned with a, you know a new vision of masculinity on the left. I thought that was one very interesting way because a lot of what they talked about in that roundtable was like what should 
Democrats do to connect with men? And is there a new vision of masculinity? You know, they're talking about things like paternity leave and the fact that paternity leave is actually a very common thing now for men, not just professional men, men in retail, men in, um, you know, it is across the board a very popular policy in all kinds of workplaces. So the, the idea that these there are all these like very practical ways that Democrats can you know, speak to men and show them what they're doing for men according to the standards we have today. Uh, they had a lot of ideas for that, so I thought that was that was interesting. In terms of the way that men do work, I, I would be remiss if I did not point out this piece by Kathy Gilson, and who is a contributing writer to Politico magazine. She's the author of a book called The Helpers, Profiles from the Front Lines of the Pandemic. And she does a piece about what she calls a pink collar working man, a guy named Eric Cromer, who has shifted from working at a General Motors assembly line where he had worked for nearly 16 years to becoming a nurse. He lost his job when the plant in Ohio closed in the recession in 2008. At the time, he had a wife, an 11-year-old daughter, a high school education, and this man, Mr. Cromer, who is, according to the piece, a self-described hillbilly, went and looked for another career and has taken up a career in nursing. I, I'm glad that in the magazine's package, in the issue, one, to show a picture of men who are redefining their own roles in their own lives, but also to kind of wonder how politicos are going to respond to these men, right? They know they have to provide. They know they're having to make some changes. They're having to reach into different areas. And I don't know if the Josh Hawley's and the Doug Emhoff's of the world are sort of universally supportive of guys like that or whether there's an effort to say, yeah, it's nice that you're a nurse, but we wish you could still go work at the GM plant. You know what I'm saying? Like where it becomes policy that they believe will make men go, yep, I feel like a man again, you know? Yeah, I think that that piece is sort of, it's it's a way of presenting that question, I think. Like, how much of this is nostalgic? Like, how much are, like, Republicans pleased to men and, like, talking about masculinity? How much is that nostalgia that's not actually, like, useful and it's not really helpful to people? Um, you know, everyone wants good jobs that are able to provide for families for people. Um, but the economy has shifted. And um, yeah, I think that piece is sort of raising the question of, you know, how these outdated notions of masculinity are actually, how do they align with, you know, opportunities for, for men to actually succeed and, and get those jobs in a changing economy? Because a lot of, a lot more of the opportunities are jobs that we think of as as feminine. I, w with regard to that, I wonder, you you talk that that's also comes up in the in the poll. I mean, you know, one of the one of the comments, as we said, there was a series of quotes and statements and you measured who agrees and who disagrees, Republicans, Democrats. There was one uh, from a Democratic Senate candidate named Lucas Kuntz who said, quote, masculinity is taking care of people, your family, your community, and making sure that you actually stand for something, unquote. 68% of Republicans agreed with that. 51% of Democrats said they agreed with that. So that kind of seems to fall along a similar line. Um, for me, as I look at this, I, you know, I, I, maybe I look at this from a minority view, but I feel like don't 
women take care of people too. I mean, I had a mom and she <laughs> took pretty good care of me. And I think that's what moms do too. Like, I don't know. It makes me wonder what the limits of the political viability of the conversation are <laughs> for non-men show up and go, freeze. <laughs> You have you have gone off the rails, mister. Come back home. You've gone too far. We know that you're having fun playing politics, but like, shut it down. This is not helpful anymore. That was a very interesting quote because he's, Kuntz is a Democrat and he had a bunch of, uh, what was it, Republicans. Republicans agreed with him in like much bigger numbers than, than Democrats did. And I think that was it too. I remember looking at that and thinking, yeah, that probably had to do with um, the way he's describing what masculinity is in a way that makes it sound like, um, ex like, um, that makes it sound too inclusive of like, uh, just good people, like describing like men, um, in a sort of like, uh, yeah, like a kind of like an essentialist way or something, um, which is probably what, uh, the more left-leaning people didn't like about that. Uh, that's an issue I think that Democrats have with, some of these ideas is like, if you're gonna use masculinity as code for like things that we all do, um, then- For just virtues. You know, yeah, it's it's difficult uh, to appeal to everyone. <laughs> so where does this go? I mean, I, I worry as a gay man that this fight over masculinity, especially as we get closer to the 2024 election cycle, is gonna turn into kind of political gay bashing again. And we've been through cycles of that, you know, in the last few years, whether it was back in 2008 with, you know, Proposition 8 in California and Amendment 1 in Florida, the same-sex marriage bans, or whether it's what we're seeing now in terms of like trans athletes and people accusing gay men of being, you know, so-called pedophiles and groomers. Like it feels like we're about to be targets again in the name of masculinity. I hope not, but I wonder where you see this going in 24, especially for people who think that this can be something they use to give them a little bit of an edge over their opponents. What is this gonna look like next year? I um, I just asked you to predict the future. I'm sorry, that's a, really, yeah, that's no, a no. really mean question. But I do wonder if there are like early, early, early indicators. Yeah, the I think that Ron DeSantis ad is um, a, perhaps like not a great indicator of where some of this is headed because it was sort of equating DeSantis manliness with his legislation against uh, like his anti-LGBT legislation. Um, and so that is a pretty clear uh, signal that one, that the one is related to the other, I think, or can be definitely, definitely can be. I think that it's definitely, you know, for a while, people were talking about the parties like they had both come around on things like same-sex marriage and gay rights. And um, I think that this latest iteration of, um, you know, discussion about trans athletes and um, minors in particular and um, gender-affirming care, um, I think that that is, we're gonna see a lot of anti-LGBT um, rhetoric or, that's, you know, just becomes a part of that, but it like goes beyond um, trans issues, is what I'm saying. I think all these things are wrapped up in culture wars and the way people are mobilized today. Um, so I think that in that sense, 
that are likely to be related in 2024, um, even if not as explicitly as you see in the DeSantis ad, which was pretty explicit. Yeah, pretty blatant. I do wonder, though, if you see anyone, and maybe not, and no could be a legit answer, if you see anyone who is trying to lead that political discussion in a mature way, in a solutions-oriented way, to try to bring the two sides together, or if it's still kind of too early for that, if it's still just more, you know, everyone is kind of in their own corners hmm. on this, politically anyway. I think right now everyone is still in their corners about it. Um, I think that some people are still trying to like puzzle out. Like I was talking about the, the book by Richard Reeves. Um, I think that he is trying to make a case that this is just an issue that every reasonable person, um, like the issues of boys and men are, are issues that any reasonable person should think seriously about. So I'm hoping, I, I feel like I saw a lot of really good praise of that book and people will start to figure out, you know, what are the right, can we rethink education? Can we rethink the job market to um, take on some of these challenges that have affected men in particular? I think that we'll see more of that. But um, we're talking about how masculinity can kind of be like a container for all these other grievances. And this other word that I struggled with at the same time was the word woke. <laughs> I struggle with that for the same reason because it doesn't really like mean any one thing. And when you try to define it, you're actually doing a lot of work that maybe you shouldn't be doing, like by making it like a more specific thing. And I was just thinking about how politics so often use words as like stand-ins for like big nebulous concepts that people can pour all of their grievances into and that it just might be a high point for stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, what 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 is that? Like what's in that container right now politically? When political players say masculinity, what do they actually mean? So I think that Josh Hawley has defined it as like the masculine virtues as courage, assertiveness, and something else. Um, so he has actually defined it, which is useful. But, you know, again, we had the problem we had with the Lucas Kuhn's quote, which is women would say that they're <laughs> courageous as well. Um, but yeah, I think that using it signals to people, you know, we care about the fact that, you know, you're having a harder time in the job market. We care about, you know, the way education is um, maybe you know, you feel like the deck is stacked against you. We, we feel for your concerns about like how the Me Too movement has gone too far, you know, if that's it. But it seems it's one of those things that you have all these things you can like read into it. And so I think that's what makes it so useful. Katie Fawcett is a senior editor at Political Magazine. Katie, this has been really helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Still to come, Barbie. It's the number one movie in the country and your fellow listeners have a lot to say about it. Fair warning. I'm going to get into the movie spoilers and all. So if you plan to see Barbie, you might want to stop the episode right now and listen later. You've been warned. Your reviews of Barbie and my take on what the film is really about are just ahead. Stay close. I know I already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Spoiler alert. If you have not seen Barbie, but you plan to, then you should stop this episode now and listen after you have watched the movie. Reason being, this movie caught a lot of people by surprise, including me. We all knew it was going to be silly and campy. It absolutely was. We had no idea it would give us so much to talk about. 
Barbie is about a children's toy, but it is not really a children's movie. That alone seems to have perplexed a lot of its critics away from catching its deeper themes. And oh my heck, were there themes. Now, when I discuss movies on air, I almost always do so with spoilers. Reason being, maybe you decided not to watch the movie, but you're still interested in the cultural discussion. In that case, the spoilers would help you follow along with what everyone else is talking about. And that's fine. It, it, from my perspective, yes, but with the storyline laid out first. And I would love to know what you think of the movie, whether you agree with my take or not. Okay, hopefully by now, everyone who was gonna stop listening has stopped, so let's dive in. First, here are some of your reviews of Barbie. Julie wrote on Substack, a couple of friends were surprised I went to see it. Why? Because I'm not a Barbie doll type person. I played with trolls when I was young. I had many of the same takeaways as Joshua did. Seeing things reversed in Barbie land is frightening, isn't it? Should make most take pause, but the ignorant slash insecure slash frightened will just attack the movie. Common reaction when feeling threatened. Glad I saw it and would recommend. Julie, thank you for sending that in. Appreciate it. George wrote on Facebook, For me, Barbie is all the things all at once. Funny, sentimental, entertaining, confrontational, celebratory, heartfelt, heartbreaking. Dazzling production design with a subversive script. Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling are great in this. I loved it. The movie was a message movie expertly crafted as a fun movie. George goes on to write, As for those saying it's anti-men or other such comments, I think they didn't get it. If anything, the movie was saying you should embrace who you are, empathize with others, and that everyone deserves a seat at the table. I'm still thinking about the movie. Me too, George. Thank you very much. And Simeon wrote on the app formerly known as Twitter, but now known as X, but still on Twitter. Not a film I would normally be interested in, but I heard it was well made, so I listened to 1A's show discussing the film. I heard the word patriarchy at least 12 times during the course of the episode. I'll pass on the movie. Now, I replied to Simeon that there's much more to the movie than this, and they said they might check it out when it's available on cable. They replied, the 1A discussion, particularly one guest, made it sound like the film was primarily a lecture on how bad men are, tired of being lectured to by the entertainment industry. Simeon, I appreciate that, and thank you for sending that in. Clearly, you are not the only one who suspected that Barbie was a man-haters matinee. Now, I don't know Simeon's politics, they didn't say, but a number of conservative figures have railed against this film in much stronger terms. Ben Shapiro began his review video by putting a Barbie doll and a Ken doll into an oil drum and then, apparently, lighting them both on fire. I'm gonna give my review of the Barbie movie in the most Oppenheimer fashion. The camera goes in for a closer shot as the dolls melt and suffer. Anger and outrage are Ben Shapiro's stock in trade. And no, that is not in Oppenheimer fashion. J. Robert Oppenheimer said he had blood on his hands for the atomic bomb. You really think he would enjoy torturing toys? All this anger at a silly movie about dolls is generally because of its treatment of gender roles. These criticisms miss a larger point of the film. 
but so do some of the rave reviews. I came away from it with something I think is much more important for men, for women, for everyone. I won't give you every single detail, but this is the story of Barbie. The movie takes place in two settings, Barbie Land and the real world. Many different Barbies live in Barbie Land alongside many different Kens. There's President Barbie, Astronaut Barbie, even Mermaid Barbie. Our main character, played brilliantly by Margot Robbie, is called Stereotypical Barbie. Blonde hair, blue eyes, impossible figure, irrepressibly bubbly, you know. Now one night during a dance party, Barbie Land is scandalized when stereotypical Barbie, out of the blue, asks if anyone ever thinks about dying. That would bring any party to a screeching halt, especially in the middle of a song that Dua Lipa wrote just for you. But that philosophical question breaks the veil of perfection around Barbie. Now everyone knows something is wrong. The next day, they see her very first patch of cellulite unconfident and imperfect, time to act fast. She seeks the advice of an exiled older Barbie known as Weird Barbie. Kate McKinnon plays Weird Barbie, a doll who's clearly been played with way too hard, you know, frizzy hair and makeup that looks like a Picasso. She explains that whoever owns this stereotypical Barbie in the real world is dealing with some kind of sadness. That sadness is causing Barbie's existential crisis. So if she finds her owner, she can set things right. That's Barbie's problem. So what about Ken? Now, if you just thought to yourself, what about Ken? Isn't this all about Barbie? Then you kind of already know what he's struggling with. It is all about Barbie. And he can't take it anymore. See, in Barbie land, the Kens are just accessories. All they want is for the Barbies to notice them. And they take it really hard when they get ignored. Ryan Gosling plays the main Ken in a role that he seemed typecast for? Ken's purpose in life is basically to be obsessed with stereotypical Barbie. He does all the typical bro stuff to impress her, like acting all cool when she does notice him and not taking no for an answer. When Barbie leaves town for the real world, Ken stows away in her trunk. Reluctantly, she agrees to let him tag along. Together, they arrive in Los Angeles and quickly realize that our world is what it is. Now, the Barbies back home firmly believe that their empowered womanhood equalized the real world. The Supreme Court in Barbie land is all women, so naturally, it's the same way here, right? But that falls apart when stereotypical Barbie finds the girl that owned her, a cynical middle schooler named Sasha. And Sasha cuts Barbie to her core. She denounces Barbie as a feminist's nightmare, even calls her a fascist. It is the first time in Barbie's existence that she has ever truly cried. To make matters worse, Ken, left without the adult supervision that he and oh so many men clearly need, starts finding books about men in the school library. That's when he learns that the real world has a system that's perfect for men like Ken, patriarchy. Now, his early experiments with patriarchy do not go well. He learns that he cannot run a company or perform surgery just because he's a man without having an MBA or without, you know, 
being a doctor. But as Ken's newly toxic masculinity continues to brew, Barbie goes to the headquarters of Mattel. Yes, the company is a character in this movie, and she knows she is a children's toy. Mattel CEO, played by Will Ferrell, knows about the crisis in Barbie Land. He and his executive team, all dudes, of course, try to get Barbie to voluntarily go into a life-sized Barbie box, complete with twist ties to bind her arms. But she escapes, darting around cubicles, running down hallways, even talking to a certain helpful person who guides her toward an escape route. I'll let you find out who that person is for yourself. That's the one thing I won't spoil. Anywho, Barbie escapes Mattel, only to be rescued by Sasha's mother, Gloria. America Ferrara is magnificent in this role. Gloria is the CEO's assistant. Turns out, Sasha was not the one who caused the crisis with that Barbie. Gloria went through Sasha's old toys during a dark moment in her own life. Gloria started all this. So Barbie, Gloria, and Sasha all head back to Barbie land together to set things right. The idea is that bringing them there should make it easier. Unbeknownst to them, the Mattel executives follow them back. And unbeknownst to all of them, this crisis has turned into a catastrophe. While stereotypical Barbie was trying to set things right, Ken went back to Barbie land on his own. Our three heroes return to find that Ken has turned the town into his personal kingdom, or rather, his Kendom. Now, all the Barbies are submissive to the Kens, serving them drinks and craving their attention. All the Barbie dream houses are man caves now. Ken's is called his Mojo Dojo Casa House. But remember, this is all affecting the real world too. Sure enough, Ken's Mojo Dojo Casa House hits the warehouses of Mattel and flies off the shelves. It's a hit. To make matters worse, the Kens have scheduled a vote to change the constitution of Barbie Land, making their new social standing permanent. It's a new low for Barbie. For the first time, she says she feels like she is not good enough. Depression sinks in, and she begins to accept defeat. Let that sink in for just a second. Not, I am not succeeding, or I am not getting what I set out to get. No, I am not good enough. Brene Brown would call that the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. In that moment, as Barbie is drowning in shame, Gloria vents her anger. Gloria goes off about the constant contradictions of being a woman, having to be thin but only saying you wanna be healthy, calling out sexism but being accused of complaining, staying pretty but not so pretty as to tempt men or threaten other women, never falling, never failing, never fearing. She ends with this. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And if all of that is also true for a doll just representing women, then I don't even know. 
I have no idea what it means to be a woman. That is why I accept what women tell me about their experiences by believing them the first time. However, as a black, gay, big, tall, physically imposing man, I have my own sense of what it's like to get crushed in the vice grip of other people's standards, people who only really care about their own comfort, even at your expense. We tie ourselves in knots so strangers will like us. And when that fails to make our lives easier, we tie those knots tighter, hoping we can constrict our way to freedom. But it's never enough. And so we bind ourselves more and more until, well, yeah. I bet a lot of men could empathize if they tried. I never expected a movie about Barbie to move me to tears, especially not more than once. Maybe you know what it's like to hear something that you cannot unhear, something that just shifts your consciousness permanently. Well, suddenly, thanks to Gloria's tirade, one of the brainwashed Barbies snaps out of it. Nobel Prize Barbie comes back to her senses. She remembers that she had a career and accomplishments before all this happened. Together, the Barbies devise a plan with the help of Weird Barbie, Ken's discontinued counterpart, Alan, played by the delightful Michael Sarah, and Weird Barbie's friends, Sugar Daddy Ken and Earring Magic Ken. Sidebar, ever notice how the outcasts and the outqueers keep saving the world? Am I the only one who's ever seen that? It is amazing how often in life our weirdos become our heroes. Conversation for another day. Anywho. The liberated Barbies head back into town, pretending to still be fully submissive. That distracts the Kens, allowing our heroes to grab the brainwashed Barbies, hand them to Gloria, and deprogram them. Gloria's reality checks unlock the Barbies' memories one by one. And with all of them released, they make their big move. They target the most vulnerable spot on any chauvinistic dude bro, his insecurity. The night before the constitutional vote, all the Kens pair off with the Barbies, serenading them on the beach under the moonlight. All of them are playing the guitar and singing the same song in unison. Push by Matchbox 20. You know, the, I wanna take you for granted, that song. As this anthem of 90s male angst reaches a crescendo, all the Barbies reach for their smartphones and walk away from the serenades. They just ghost the guys. Before long, the confused Kens fight among themselves for the ladies' attention. Literally, fight. Remember, the Kens like the Barbies, not each other. This attack on their egos triggers a royal rumble, a, a beachfront battle with lacrosse sticks and pickleball paddles. The Barbies slip away to restore the Constitution, leaving the Kens distracted and the Mattel executives trapped in the chaos of the fighting. And so, the Barbies prevail, restoring order to Barbie land and putting things back the way they were. Victory for the Barbies. So why doesn't stereotypical Barbie feel victorious? To many of the movie's critics, this is apparently where the story ended. 
their critiques seem to disregard what comes next. And that's a shame. Because if you tune out of the movie at this point, it's easy to feel like this whole thing was about putting down men and making women look like both the ultimate heroes and the ultimate victims. There is more to it than that. I like the way Jack Butler puts it in the National Review, a conservative magazine. Quote, Masculine pride makes it far easier for me to recommend Oppenheimer than to esoterically interpret Barbie positively. It is, to be clear, not really a movie about men, but it does not hate them. It is something far different and far more interesting than that. Conservatives who think otherwise might not be thinking big enough. Unquote. Right. If anything shows how egocentric some men are, it's the pushback to Barbie. Everything is not about us, including this movie. Granted, the fact that the Barbies devalue the Kens drives the central conflict, though the plot is deeper than that. But you know what? Let's deal with that complaint, that it's anti-men. Let's even stipulate, just for the sake of argument, that the movie is intended to make men look like morons. To be fair, men are having a tough moment right now. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the average American man will live nearly six years less than the average woman. Men also tend to have lower health literacy levels than women. That means we're less likely than women to make informed health decisions. Also, according to the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center, male college enrollment is down about 6% more than for females. White male college enrollment is down nearly 20%. And that's all just in the last five years or so. If we truly care about gender equality, that means we must care about everyone across that spectrum. With all that said, what will attacking the Barbie movie solve? I absolutely refuse to believe that it makes me any less of a man if I let women make fun of me. The issues facing men hurt our pride for sure, yes, but how is pridefulness gonna solve anything? If you're bent out of shape because a movie with strong female characters made fun of you, I got bad news for you, Ben. You're late to the bonfire. Watch any classic movie with Mae West and tell me she's not 10 times smarter than every man in the room. Or watch the movies of Rosalind Russell or Joan Crawford or Katherine Hepburn. If you're mad at Hollywood for making women look smart and men look dumb, you're too late. Women have been laughing at us for generations. But, but, here's the kicker. You know the real woman power moment of the Barbie movie? It's in the credits. The part that lists Margot Robbie not just as the star, but as a producer. According to Vogue magazine, Ms. Robbie's production company secured the rights from Mattel to make this movie back in 2018. She says she originally wanted Gal Gadot to play the lead role. This was right after Ms. Gadot starred in Wonder Woman, another movie that I love. Come to think of it, that movie made me cry too. Dang, I must need a hug or something. Anyway, Margot Robbie says playing Barbie herself never occurred to her until she was years into producing the film. I guess that's something else Ben Shapiro can stay mad about. He put money directly into Margot Robbie's pocket, personally. And so did everyone else who loved it. 
Women have found ways to do big things on film for generations, despite Hollywood's towering chauvinism, sexism, and predatory creepiness. We are more than our sex, more than our gender identity, more than our allegiances. That is the point of the movie. Too bad so many folks on the right missed it. Then again, a lot of people on the left missed it too. Some reviews point to patriarchy as the villain of the film, but I think that is also wrong. Saying that patriarchy is the villain of Barbie is like saying the ring was the villain of the Hobbit. That's just the weapon. The real villain was the impulse that led to its use. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized Barbie and Ken were actually fighting the same villain. Gloria's tirade about womanhood made that clear. Here's what I mean. Barbie started out believing that everything was perfect for women now and that her mission was to get back to that norm. Ken came to believe that a male-dominated society would give him a perfect world, even if it came at the expense of the Barbies. Early in the film, and in the trailer, we see that Barbie does not just wear high heels. Her feet are actually sloped that way. Remember what clued Barbie into the fact that something was wrong? Her first imperfections. Yes, the cellulite, but that came later. The first one? Her heels touched the ground for the first time. Or, as one of the Barbies says, <gasps> Are you getting it? Barbie's mission to get back to before, Ken's vendetta to take total control, the Mattel execs protecting their profit center, Gloria going off about the unreasonable standards women face, they are all about the same thing, perfectionism. The villain in Barbie is not patriarchy, it's perfectionism. It's the oversimplified structure of Barbie land a world that depends on keeping things basic and childlike. Barbies are great, Kens are just kind of there, toys are shunned for being unpopular, pregnant, or latently homosexual, and that's that. Simple, obvious, orthodox, perfect, until it's not. Now, for a children's toy, that is actually perfect. Prior to Barbie, dolls for girls did not look like women. They looked like children, babies. And if a girl's dolls all look like babies, then what does the girl pretend to be? A mommy and nothing else. When Barbie debuted in 1959, its creator, Ruth Handler, made a doll that looked like a woman. This was before women could open bank accounts on their own. Did you know that? That changed with the Equal Credit Opportunity Act of 1974. Women have only had the right to bank for themselves in the United States for less than 50 years. So, the idea of letting girls imagine womanhood outside the context of motherhood and marriage and men seemed to some people like a very unreasonable expectation. But then, Barbie has always gotten flack for creating unrealistic expectations. But, it does not work unless it's presented in a fantasy world that bears no resemblance to reality. So that perfect fantasy world had its place early on. Perhaps the opportunity for us now is to view Barbie 
the way Gloria does, fully aware of the dangers of perfectionism. Perhaps Barbie's own journey in this movie gives us a better way to place this icon in today's culture. Perhaps the key is to do what she eventually did, accept complexity as the key to humanity. I mean, think about how many Barbies there have been over the years. The original black and white striped swimsuit, Malibu, architect, news anchor, mermaid, entrepreneur, presidential candidates, Star Trek, even Wonder Woman. I mean, it's easy to tell a child, you can be anything you want to be. But what does that mean? How can you know as a kid unless we show you? As a kid, you need to see options. As an adult, you just need to opt. You don't need to make the choices you're shown. You just need to be empowered to choose something that works for you. The challenge for us as adults is to step past the literal emblems of our childhood and carry their meanings forward into the complexities of adulthood. But that's the whole conundrum of child raising, isn't it? Giving them what they need at each stage of their lives to prepare them for the next one, knowing that they'll struggle anyway, no matter what you do. Gloria caused havoc in Barbie land by reaching for the childlike simplicity of a Barbie doll as relief from the complex challenges of grown-up life. Hard to blame her for that. But how did she set things right? By speaking those challenges, leaning into them, helping others do the same. Now, after the Constitution is restored, Barbie does something extremely mature. She apologizes to Ken for making him feel unwanted. She convinces him that he does not need to define himself by her validation, but by who he is, independent of anyone else. She understands that he's not a bad guy, but he made a bad choice because of real feelings of inadequacy. Ken's mistake was not just that he wanted to bring women down, but also that he never thought to bring himself up. He hated the simple life he was given, so he created another simple life. When Barbie apologizes to him, that gives him a chance to be his own man, truly his own, not defined by the women who served him or the men who sucked up to him. Now, granted, Ken might truly be dumber than a box of busted bricks. By the end of the movie, he's wearing a blissful grin and a sweater that says, I am Kenuff. But hey, if he's ready to try, let him try. And his storyline suggests something we're seeing here in the real world. When young men are groping for meaning, starving for guidance, feeling unwanted and insulted, those emotions can easily turn toxic. Street gangs, incels, oath keepers, pseudo-Islamic terrorists, insurrectionists, the mobs that descended on Charlottesville, Virginia back in 2017, never underestimate the power of disaffection. And within those groups, what do these young men find? Another kind of perfectionism. Demands for perfect loyalty, perfect toughness, a perfectly united front to do perfectly vicious things. You dissolve your identity into a collective. How easy it is to give away who you are in the hopes of validation and acknowledgement. Ken finds a book on patriarchy in the library. Today's young men find tweets from Andrew Tate. Both aim to subjugate women and make men into monarchs. 
Women have done an amazing job of banding together, pushing back against outdated norms, finding new ways to live their own lives. Who will help men do the same? Not for some one-size-fits-all, manly man, dude-bro dogma like we heard about earlier in the show. And not for some revenge plot to get back at the women who allegedly emasculated us, but for a real shot at being who we are, independent of other men and independent of the women whose approval we crave. How will we break free from dogma to discovery? The true evil of patriarchy is it demands perfection from imperfect people, perfect submission by women, perfect control by men, and perfect compliance by all. But we are too complex for such dehumanization. You are complex, and that's what makes you human. That's what makes you deserving of belonging and worthy of love, not in spite of your rough spots, but because of them. And once our heroine realizes all this and makes amends with Ken, how does the story end? The only way it can. Barbie has heard some things she cannot unhear, examined her world and found its perfection untenable. And so she leaves Barbie land forever. She decides to become human with the help of a friend. Barbie is just an idea, and that idea can be whatever we want it to be. As the movie ends, Gloria, Sasha, and Gloria's husband drop Barbie off for a very important appointment in the real world, a rite of passage, her very first meeting with her gynecologist. The Barbie movie is about discovery, about complexity, about the courage to face life's challenges and to speak out about its injustices. That's what I think. Tell me what you think. How do you see the message of the Barbie movie? Do I have it all wrong? Is there something I'm missing? Please feel free to disagree or let me know if you think I'm on target. I'm at Joshua Listening on social media, or you can email me joshua at nightlightshow.com. The Nightlight comes to you from Sun Arts Media. Please support the show as a paid subscriber online at nightlightshow.com. You can follow the show on YouTube, on Substack, or on your podcast app. If you listen on YouTube, please be sure to like this episode, subscribe to the channel, and click that bell for notifications each time there's a new episode. If you listen on an audio-only podcast app, please leave a review of this episode. That'll help other people find the show. So until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thanks for making time for me. And please keep on shining because someone somewhere needs your light right now. Ooh.